Hey guys, this is the inaugural podcast of Philosophers and Mad Men. We're coming at you out of Buffalo, New York. And this podcast actually started about a year ago when Dave was getting interested in becoming a dog trainer. He, shortly after, got hired as a dog trainer somewhere. So he and I wanted to kind of put together a podcast of which we were going to be able to talk to different dog trainers and not just dog trainers, but people that we're really passionate about what they do for a living. We are both dog trainers by profession, so you may imagine that there is going to be a heavy slant of dog trainers on this podcast. To be clear, I'm Josh Moran. I'm a dog trainer out of Buffalo, New York, and my sidekick here... I am Dave Putman, a dog trainer based out of Buffalo, New York. This podcast, Philosophers and Mad Men, again, we're going to be talking to people who are really passionate about what they do, people who are crazy folks uh, about what they do. That's kind of what we're really interested as people. So we're going to try and bring some of those conversations to you guys. The first guest we have on our podcast is a guy named Chad Mackin. Most people in the dog training industry know a little bit about him. Um, you know, we're not going to go into a full-blown you know, a historical profile on Chad, but we do want to give you guys some information about how you can get a hold of him. Chad can be reached at pack2basics.net, P-A-C-K-B-A-S-I-C-S dot N-E-T. Again, pack2basics.net. I can be found at barefootdogtrainer.com, and Dave can be found on Facebook and uh, Twitter, Periscope. Uh, do we say Instagram? No, but no. you know, generally speaking, barefoot dog trainer is where you're going to find me in most applications. So this is, uh, as I said, our first podcast that we're releasing to you guys. We got some other ones in the cooker, and we have some other really cool interviews coming up. And um, we wanted to give you guys a bit of an introduction to this podcast, so you kind of know what to expect in know what you're walking into. This is not your average, just, you know, sit down, ask, you know, specific questions type of interview. We wanted to have conversations with people. And we're also not necessarily gearing this towards family friendly all the time. So I'm going to put that out there right now. I'm not going to be dropping the F-bomb left and right, but Dave is. So, uh, <laughs> but for real, we're not looking to make this the type of thing that is, um, you know, super censored or anything like that. So without further ado, we're going to hook you guys up with this conversation we had with our good friend, Chad. Hopefully you dig it. If you don't check out our Facebook page, philosophers and Mad Men. let us know how much we suck and what we can do to not suck so much. And we'll take it from there. You guys have a good one. Much love. P.S. We are going to start off the interview after some music. We had a bit of technical difficulties in the beginning, so we're going to get right into talking to Chad. So this is your introduction to all three of us, myself, Josh Moran, Dave Putman, and Chad Mackin. Chicago training dogs is there uh, anything in particular that makes that, that you're like pretty excited about in dog training right now um, well it's, uh, there's always something right for me it's it's there's always a, an opportunity to grow and to learn and to change and to become better and, and for 
for me, I, I finally settled for myself on, I try to consider myself as, as an artist in training. Uh, so I don't think of dog training as a profession any longer. I don't think of it as a uh, job or uh, even a career. To me, it's 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 a calling. It's a vocation. It's an art. It's it's a passion, and I'm lucky enough to make money doing it. Uh, uh, Leonard Cohen once said, "I don't work for pay, but I like to get paid for my work." <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of where I am. Like. Uh, what I've been right recently, so I've spent you know twenty three, almost twenty three years now, um, really using a leash and a variety of collars as my primary training tools. Right, slip leads, choke collars, pinch collars, uh, e collars, whatever. But everything has been everything has really been focused. Like the primary modality I've been working with is has been using that leash as my primary method of communication. You know, I use food reward and I use. You know, uh, play rewards and uh, social rewards for sure. I'm big, big, big into that. Um, but, uh, but my primary training equipment, the primary equipment has been uh, leashes and things like that, right? So uh, many people would watch me work and think that I work primarily in the realm of negative reinforcement. Uh, and I could, I could defend against that 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 position pretty pretty clearly. Um, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I don't agree with that assessment. But what I do know is that I have uh, watching. Uh, I had Sarah Fulcher come visit with me for a few weeks or for a week, excuse me, and uh, she started doing some of her, uh, you know, uh, shaping work with the clicker, and uh, and I realized watching her that I am not good enough at adding a positive a positive reinforcement I'm not quick enough I'm not sharp enough because it, it, the, the modalities that I've been working under my whole life has been that slack is the primary motivator right so I believe that the dogs when I'm working with a dog they're not moving away from pressure they're moving towards slack right? yeah. it, it, it looks the same on the outside but from the dog's point of view he's seeking slack not seeking to avoid pressure and, and so if that's the case, if the slack is the dog's primary reinforcer, then you don't have you, – all you do is give that slack at the right time. And then you've got a dog who's basically self-reinforcing the whole time. Oh, I feel slack. I'm good. I feel slack. I'm good. I feel slack. I'm good. So because of that paradigm, I've not had to become really good at constantly offering reinforcements because the methods that I learned starting out had a built-in reinforcement system that all I – that literally if I did nothing, the dog was getting rewards. Right, and so I never really learned the timing of offering a lot of reinforcement, a lot of reinforcement. So watching Sarah, I was going, "Ooh, I really need to get better at that." And then, uh, and of course, you know, Jay, Jay Jack, my my my, my podcast partner and uh, friend, uh, he's real big into using tug as a training modality, right? So uh, I've been playing with that. And so long story short, if it's not too late for that, what I've been focused on this past couple of weeks is using play and positive reinforcement to, to shape a, a different type of heel, one of those more flashy competition-style heels. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a new experience for me because I've never, I've never looked for that. I've never, that's never been a high-priority goal of mine. But uh, whenever I see my friend Tekla, see her dogs work Aries especially I go oh that's beautiful that's amazing I, I want that and I've always said eh 
you know, I'm, I'm a, I, it's not my wheelhouse, you know, I'm proud of her and I'm amazed by that. And, you know, uh, she's great. And if I find myself reaching the end of my, my pet dog stuff, maybe I'll do, do, do dedicate some time to that idea. But uh, to be very honest, uh, it's, it's been bothering me that I, like, I really want that skill. I want that. I look at that. It's, it's, it's not something I'm going to use with many of my, many, many of my training clients. But it's inspired me, and I realized that to do that, I've got to get better at offering that positive reinforcement and in a more timely manner. It becomes it becomes more detail oriented. So this past couple of weeks, I've been really focusing on that. I'm making videos and sending them to Tecla and saying, "What do you think about this?" And she's sending me answers back. So. Um, so for me, that's what's really exciting is that is that no matter what I know, no matter where I go, no matter how much I've learned, there's always another modality I can start integrating into what I'm doing, another thing that I can start playing with, another idea that can that can, and it all comes back down to everything we do every day, right? Like, there's no such thing as useless dog knowledge. You know? Sure. And, yeah. And, no. You know? I mean, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right in that factor. And, and Tekla is actually how I heard about you. I. Oh. I uh, I heard about you from Tekla after a Bart Ballone seminar. We were sitting at Olive Garden, of all places, uh, having dinner with Bart and a bunch of the other people that went to the to the workshop. And uh, Tekla was talking about this, this guy who had uh, done a workshop with her on socialization. And she was she was like gushing about how awesome the workshop was. And um, it was shortly after that that. Tyler had gotten a hold of you about doing a, a workshop in Buffalo for us, and that's where we met in person. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Tekla is a phenomenal dog trainer. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that lady. She's awesome. She's amazing, and she's so she's so humble about it too. She is. She is. She's not a bragger. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. She she's good people. Like she's one of my favorite persons in the world. Like you know, uh, she's a great trainer. She's very humble, but she's also just a really good human being. Yeah, she's a, she's a real nice lady, and, and I've had some super cool conversations with her, so uh, much respect. All hail Tecla. Yeah, kidding. <laughs> she's, she's, and she's working on starting to do some workshops, too, so that's that's awesome because she's got a lot to offer. I'm really, really supportive of that. Yeah, no, no, no. She's, uh, she's done some really cool stuff, and you're absolutely right. I've gotten the chance to see a few of her dogs work over the years, and whether it be in scent detection or some of her, you know, um, like ring sport protection type stuff. I've always been super impressed and and really kind of uh, inspired by watching her work because she likes doing it. Her dogs look like they always like doing it. And that to me is one of the most important things. And she's really one of those trainers that incorporates a bit of everything into what she does. And that's something that I really dig. Right, and, and, and you know it's interesting because Aries, the dog that, that she's, you know, she's just done a, a big Schutzen campaign with. Um, she was told he was. She was told by uh, some of the big names in the ring sport world, and I won't drop their names here because, you know, that's not really cool. But uh, yeah. you'll, you're, you'll, you'd be familiar with the names for sure. But uh, she was told by some big names that that dog would not make it in the ring sport world. That he didn't have the have what it took. And of course, uh, if you know about Aries' uh, competition history, he's like he's a he's, beast. Yeah, he's demolished every, every competition. <laughs> he's just destroyed everybody else that was competing. Like he's won every cat. I think he's won every category of every competition he's been in. Yeah, like, I mean, it, uh, incredibly talented, both of them, and both. Yeah, of them. I mean, for sure. Yeah. It's funny how often that happens in in the world of sport work. Like, oh, this dog can't do the work. Well, maybe. 
you know, it, it turns out that's that's not necessarily exactly true, you know. Well, you know, it's. It, 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 I read a, a, a interview with Bernie Brown, who was a, a big obedience competitor back in the '80s, like AKC competition obedience, and uh, he was kind of a rock star of his day. Like, you know, and now like it was different then. You couldn't like now you can become a rock star with some YouTube videos and the right promotion, and all this stuff. But back then, the only way to become a rock star in the dog world was to go out to competitions and consistently beat the pants off everybody else, right? Sure. So Bernie was that guy. It was like, and he would campaign with these dogs, and he was ruthless about kicking the dogs out who were not cut out for it. Like he was, his and his argument was uh, that that first of all, what we're asking the dogs to do is very hard on them. It's hard on them mentally. It's hard on them psychologically. It's hard on them emotionally. The campaign, the travel from you know hotel to hotel to comp to venue to venue to venue, and and the, the precision that we're asking for them day in and day out, and the training regimen, and the like. They're as like an Olympic athlete. They at that top level, they are. Those dogs give everything to that sport. And he said it's not fair to do it to a dog that doesn't love it. it doesn't yeah. make sense. No, absolutely. Right. And he also said, I'm not looking to train a good dog. I'm looking for the best competitor. Yeah. And so it's very easy when you're at that level to say, like, no NFL team picks the third string guy from a last place <laughs> college team and says, we can build him into something. Sure. Maybe they can. Yeah, he's a project quarterback, right? Yeah, the way he says that. But. But uh, so when you're looking for a competitor, if you're a ring sport guy or any competition guy and you want to be at the top of competition, the, the, the efficiency paradigm says find the best athlete for the job and then tweak it. I get that. You know what I'm saying? But Tekla is one of those people who says, no, this is my dog and I want to compete with my dog. So I'm going to make it work because she does not. See, I don't think she sees herself as a competitor. She sees herself as somebody who likes to compete. And that's a big difference. Yeah, no, that is an interesting difference, too, for sure. So I, I think that's I, I think that's why when some people look at that dog, people who are top competitors go, I don't I don't have the time to put into a dog like that. I got six dogs over here that don't need that much time and will do very well. Yeah. So it's it's not it's it's just it's it's about where your interest is, and uh, but I myself am more in that techno line. I've always liked like one like Mary Mazzari is who's an amazing trainer who's here about twenty minutes from me. You know she put she put at least one and it's maybe more than one, but she put an arch on an Irish Wolfhound. Oh no. For real? Yeah, for real. And that's, that's, just, that's just not done. Right? Yeah, that's awesome. You know, and so when I see some, like that's what I love is 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 people who take the time to do that, do the thing that other people won't bother because you know if you're campaigning for an notch, you want to you want you really want a, 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 a treat happy golden retriever or a border collie, right? So you get that really sharp precision and that really right. Yeah. Uh, of course, it was a different time back then too. You know, the, the you know one of the things that Tekla talks to me about all the time is that the the obedience sport world has changed so much in the past twenty years. Like, what was a what was a, a high scoring dog twenty years ago? Does isn't going to score as well as often? I mean, the rules don't say this, but just what judges look for. They want sharpness. They want crispness. They want that that uh, that love of work. Whereas it used to be that they wanted a serious dog. Mm-hmm. Right, a dog who looked like he was doing a job, you know. So it, 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 it sort of has, has changed, and 
the competition has gotten greater. If you want to start being better, it's like in everything, right? As as, comp, as competitors get better, the standard of excellence gets higher and higher, and that's what pushes that standard of excellence up to the sky, right? So to see what's if, possible. Yeah, well, I mean, even if you take if you take just leash work, right? Just take leash work. Like, I'm sure. You know, people say that that, that that I people accuse me all the time of claiming to have invented this concept of pressure and release, which is absolute nonsense. I've never claimed to invent it. As a matter of fact, what I've always said is that everything that has ever worked in the history of dogs, or any kind of training really, it, it is a variation of the theme of pressure and release, depending on where the pressure comes from and where the release comes from. Sure. I have I have maintained that forever. But uh it's very interesting because the way that the way that uh, that I developed to do it, the way that Tyler developed, in the way that you you and Tyler, I guess, probably developed that together. Um, uh, that conversational leash work, as Tyler calls it, and I love that name for it. Um, that is fairly new. I'm sure there are people who were doing it. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure that there have always been people who did something along that line. But you didn't find it in videos. You didn't find it in books. You didn't go to workshops and see people doing that. Now, is that now? Let me ask you this: Is that because you think that prior to this kind of day and age, I guess, um, the technology wasn't available to display that, or because people weren't doing it? I'm not sure. I, I think. I, I think like I don't. I'm not. Uh, arrogant enough to believe that I've discovered something that no one had ever seen before. Sure. You know what? I, I stumbled across something. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, I st- and you and Tyler stumbled across the same thing about the same time. And that was a really interesting time in both the, you know, Tyler and I were, were furiously texting back and forth back then. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God, look at this. Well, think about this, think about this. It was really just this great time where we were just, it was, it was the perfect example of parallel development. But... I'm Much different arrogant. than our text message exchanges, uh, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, ours are very different. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but uh, there was. It was definitely this parallel development thing that was going on, and uh, and like I said, I'm not arrogant enough, and I know Tyler's not arrogant enough, and I know you're not arrogant enough to think that, that, that this was something that had never been done before. But we did develop it on our own. We didn't have anybody to go to to go to, to ask advice on, like, like, how would you do this? We didn't have coaches. We, we saw an idea, an opportunity, and we began to explore it, and it brought us to very similar places, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but... So I, if people were doing it, the, the, they didn't have the technology, nor did they have the inclination. One of the things that's very interesting is that, is that uh, when I started, at least where I was in Houston, Texas, you, trainers didn't share information. Yeah. Like that was trade sequence. That's like sharing the formula for Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> you didn't do that. This was my thing. So it may have been some secrecy. Um, but I think more importantly, it was the culture. The culture of dogs was not – nobody was seeking the, the, the path that was smoothest for the dog. Mm-hmm. Right? You had – in my opinion, in my understanding, you had people who were looking for – they were looking for expediency. They were looking for ideology. Those two things for sure. Um and maybe a few other other things, right? A few other things, but what they what, what they weren't looking for was the best way for the dog. And, and what I mean by that, because somebody's going to go, well, wait, wait, what about positive reinforcement training? That was 
you know that that movement began the movement began in the 60s maybe before that I'm not sure but that movement was well into it and I, yes but I don't I've never believed in my entire career I've never believed that positive reinforcement trainers were motivated by what was best for the dog uh, is that something think, you care to uh, expand upon sure, are, but are you I saying get, that you basically think that they were they were more uh, concerned with like the, their own moral idea or like ethical interpretation of the training yeah it's a, it's a, the priority was on an ideology yeah right and 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 so like one of the things that i'm big on saying is that you have to set your priorities because your priorities decide what decisions you make so if your priority is to never use a prong collar or to never use compulsion or to uh never give food reward because that was a big deal when i was starting out was you didn't give food if you were a balanced trainer what the hell are you talking about you know, Dick Russell used to say, I love this. And Dick, I, I never get a laugh when I say it, but I laughed every time Dick said it and everyone else did too. But he used to say in his group class, when he would introduce the paper plate recall, which is a food-based exercise, he would tell this story. He would say, when I started training, you would sooner be caught swearing in church than giving a dog a treat to train him. <laughs> and... And that's what it was like. It was it was sacrilege. You don't do that because I mean, uh, in one of Bill Keeler's books, he wrote that it would be an insult to the dog to offer him a treat for the job well done. Like this was the mindset. He literally wrote something along those lines that you don't want to insult the dog. I think he was talking about the the, the fetch, like the don't insult the dog by putting peanut butter on it or some something like that, right? That, that's that's an insult to his work ethic and this sort of thing. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something along those lines. I'm misquoting for sure, but the, the, that was the intent of the words. So in the balanced world, you had a priority. You don't feed the dog. The dog should work because he respects you, mm-hmm. right? So that's, again, that's an ideology. So if your priority is I don't want to treat the dog or I don't want to you know, use physical pressure on the dog, if those are your ideologies, then at some point in time you're going to come to, come to a place where you have to put that ideology above the dog. Now what they would say is, well, no, not using compulsion is the best thing for the dog. Is not using compulsion the best thing for every dog in every circumstance that could possibly exist? Is that what you're telling me? Well, then they're going to have to equivocate because nobody wants to say a 100% answer, right? But once you start equivocating, then you have to admit that sometimes, if it's not always the best thing, then sometimes the best thing is to go the other way, is to use a little bit of compulsion. But their ideology doesn't allow for that, right? So they make a decision knowing that... that probably they could get the job done a little faster if they put a little pressure on the dog, but I'm not allowed to do that. My my ideology doesn't doesn't uh, allow for that. And likewise, a lot of balanced trainers uh, maybe would have had the opportunity to give the dog a piece of food and and doubled the learning speed, but they didn't do it because it's not in the it's not part of the thing. It's not part of my my established priority is to not be a food trainer. My established priority is to not be a compulsion trainer. And once you establish that as your priority instead of the most important thing being the dog, then you start making decisions that are not best for the dog. It's going to happen sooner or later. So I've never, So if you define yourself by an ideology, if you define yourself by a label, I am this type of trainer, I am this type of trainer, I am this type of trainer, whatever, whatever that is, I'm a positive trainer, I'm a progressive trainer, I'm a balanced trainer, I'm a, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call yourself. When you make that your identity, you will by that extension end up making decisions that are not necessarily the best for the dog because your priority isn't on that your priority is staying in in your your club if you will or 
you will do what so many people do is they'll break you'll break the rules but not tell anybody about it which is the worst thing I agree. No, that's a that's a good perspective, and I think that's a an important one for people to be able to have a discussion about. And I think that what I like about particularly uh, kind of like this new way of communicating, whether it's podcasts or the internet or being able to Skype somebody or different Facebook groups or honestly the types of really interesting and thought-provoking conversations I've been able to have through the ICP is that you can have some of these conversations without casting stones. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that's important to me. And I think that those, those conversations need to be had. Almost, most definitely. So, it's- sorry to interrupt, Chad. I, I kind of had a question for you. That was, sure. So I'm relatively, I would say, a novice dog trainer. Okay. So I've been training dogs for about two years working with Josh, directly under Josh, his apprentice, you could say, or his Darth Vader, I I believe he prefers. Yeah, I'm the emperor, for sure. For sure. Um, I was just curious what you thought about this, the new... So I know no other way in dog training other than sharing information. And I was, let's say, raised on the having access to videos, right? I have access to Tyler, to Josh, to their videos, uh, what are your thoughts on the new platform that's coming out? Like, Learberg in particular has their online courses, which um, I'm actually in one right now. I'm taking Forrest Mickey's Healer's Toolbox course because I'm also interested in that flashy competition heel. Um, I worked my own with Tyler's help and watching his videos. And just we had a, a student shadowing Josh and Tyler, uh, Monique. Onsley. Onsley from Vancouver, Vancouver, British Columbia. She posts a lot in the message board, but and she really helped me with the heel too. Uh, what are your thoughts on that sort of progression towards learning through online media versus the standard, you know, you're my master, I'm your apprentice type? Um, I, I think it's it's a mixed bag. Like one of my one of my platitudes that I use all the time, and it's it's deliberately grammatically incorrect, so don't worry about that. I was an English teacher. I will tell you that prior to this <laughs> sentence coming out. Okay. So, uh, but but I use it all the time. I, I I apply it to dogs. I apply it to people. I apply it to just about everything. But I I teach, I teach it in my workshops. It's information equals good. <laughs> more, more information equals gooder. All right. So, so, and it's deliberately grammatically incorrect because you'll never forget that for the rest of your life. Sure won't. <laughs> right. So, uh, and that's an, imp- but that's an important point. I think having the access to information is amazing. My problem is, is that it also comes with it a, a, a tendency for a lot of chest beating. Sure. The, sure. the problem is, is, I think overall there is a significant lowering of the idea of what competence or ma- I shouldn't say competence but the idea of what mastery in this in this profession looks like um, there are and so you have people who are putting out videos the instructional videos that people are learning from uh, that maybe have only you know two or three years behind the leash and they're putting out these videos and people who are just starting go, oh, this is what good dog training looks like. And it's not 
bad dog training. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying these people are terrible, but like you don't look at those videos and have that experience I had when I saw Martin Dealey work a dog for the first time. Well, sure. And I'd, I'd been training dogs for seven, eight years at that time when I saw Martin Dealey, and I saw him, and I said, oh, my God, I don't know a damn thing. <laughs> it's a right? daily occurrence usually in my life. But but you can you can find half a dozen YouTube channels in, 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 in you know, three or four minutes that where – the, the people who are promoting, the people who are posting, the, you know, the, the owners of the channel, if you will, uh, are putting out beginning level dog training. And they have people who are eating it up like it is, you know, what Martin does. Like a lot of people have never seen what amazing dog training looks like. And by the way, if you're listening and you dip it in your, because I hear this all the time, if you're listening and you're going, well, I've been to your workshop, I've seen you do that, do stuff so I know what it looks like. No, I'm not talking about what I do. Because I don't look at what I do and go, well, that's amazing. I still look at folks like Mark Goldberg and Martin Deal and go, holy crap, I got so much more to learn. Right? right? Absolutely. Those, those guys, those are the guys that, that like, but they're not doing the videos. They're not, they're not, they're not making, like, they're not promoting themselves. Now, there's some, I mean, there's other great guys, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not discounting everybody, you know, and, and I don't, I don't have a Learberg subscription, so I don't know what's, what's on there. Uh, I have a problem with learning from videos. That's my personal thing. It has nothing to do with, with whether I think anyone else should do it. But my problem from learning from videos, or even I have trouble with workshops with this too, and that is I like to get one or two small principles and then figure out where I can go with them and then go ask for another piece. I don't – because – this is something that I've always struggled with is that when I watch somebody work, like even people that, I, that, that I'm amazed by, that I love, that I think are amazing, about 20% of what they tell me, my BS filter goes, no, that's not right. Right? You're doing something that's amazing, but it's not working for the reason you think it's working. And that's, and if I can figure out that thing that, that seems to be missing from the explanation, I can make this process better. I can improve on it, but only if I don't let you tell me why it's working, right? And so I struggle with this all the time. So I can't, like, I get I get antsy when I watch a video. Like, I can't finish it. I've got to stop and go play with that idea. And they start talking past them. Like, wait, go back, go back, go back, because I think you just said something important, and you're not giving it the importance, the, 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 the time it needs. Let's go back to that. Let's explore that. We could spend an hour talking about this idea. And they're moving on. And so um, I don't learn well from videos because I get frustrated. Like I get overwhelmed. Like there's too much. Like uh, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll be reading a, a philosophy or a science book. And the same thing will happen. And I'm like that statement's too important to leave. Statement's too important to just drop. I need to think about this. And I'll put the book down and come back to it sometimes two or three months later and say, okay, I'm ready to move on past that idea. So it's not it's not an ideal uh, way for me to learn but I, I think you know I, I think Learberg's doing a good thing by putting information available and you know there's a whole lot of resources for that um, you know but uh, again the other part about learning from video is that when you're watching videos it's, 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 and I'm gonna go to the jujitsu analogy because I do that all the time we do jujitsu all the time too yeah <laughs> so so you can you can sit in front of YouTube 
and watch hours and hours of videos on techniques, right? I've got a fairly extensive DVD collection of jujitsu DVDs, right? You I'm listening on that suckered one. In. Like, oh, that's only well, twenty five bucks. I'll order that one. I get. I need Wormguard DVD. I can't play uh, Wormguard. I don't have that one. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it, but I can't play with it. <laughs> I've got uh, I've got I've got a lot. I got some Keenan Cornelius, some Rafael Lovato Jr., some uh, um, uh, 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 Cyborg Abreu, uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, Seneca, you know. And of course, you know, I've got you know, I've got uh, you know, Draculino's DVDs and both sets, and you know, I got a, a ton of DVDs, and, and I'm, I love them. But the point is, is you cannot get good. You cannot become. A good jujitsu practitioner watching the DVDs. There's a difference between having information and having that information become kinetically fluid. And so I think that there's a, a, one of the other things about this, about the about the the video age that we live in, is that people are getting ahead of themselves. Their their theory is outrunning their practical application. And going back to Bruce Lee, you know, uh, don't fear the man who's practiced 10,000 kicks, but fear the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. Uh, I think that, that, that in this hunger that everybody has to get all the information they can, they're not taking the time to synthesize that information into something that's workable for them. And so they end up a lot of times with these conf- this confused mess. I see this so much. Like, uh, you know, right now the, the workshop craze is huge, right? Everybody's got a workshop now. Everybody's got a uh, – and there's nothing wrong with that I mean it's great you know there's nobody there's nobody that I'm opposed to there's nobody that I have no enemies in the dog world like mm-hmm. some people may consider me their enemy but I don't there's no one that I consider my enemy like there's no one like I just I don't I don't care um, if you're out there and you're giving information you're probably doing a good thing even if I don't agree with your information at least you are at least you're out there giving people opportunities, right? So I'm, I, I really, I'm done with the, I, for a while I was getting kind of hot on the collar about certain things and I'm done with that. I just, I've, I've retired from the dog training police completely and it's so much more, so much, <laughs> so, so much more peaceful. But that said, I have people that I agree with more than others. I got people that support me. Josh and Tyler, I think are, are awesome and amazing and, and, and I want to do everything I can to help them get their message out because, you know, I agree with them most of their message, you know, and the points of disagreement are minor. Thanks, man. You know what, you know what I mean? And they're, you know, Josh, I think you're a great trainer. I think Tyler's a great trainer and you're great people. And that's the other thing too. Uh, they're all right. <laughs> I, I, listen, character is important in this industry. I really believe that that you you cannot be a great dog trainer without having a certain degree of character. I've, well, I've been I, noticing that. Actually. I would have to agree wholeheartedly, and I think For part sure. of that is because uh, I found one of the after Tekla talked about you, I found a article you wrote that quite literally changed the way I approach dog training uh, for. Uh, the rest of my life relationship the hidden motivator and 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 I think quite honestly that's probably why we tend to find that we gravitate towards people who are not just talented as dog trainers but are people of which we like to surround ourselves with not just because they're fun or funny or like but but all around good people because we are creating relationships and, uh-huh. and when you're creating relationship, that is a very much two way street and you're exposing yourself to a certain degree in that context. So I think that, um, you know, that's, that probably plays a, a large part into it. And, and, you know, that article for me was effing 
mind-blowing, man. Like, uh, <laughs> when I read that article, it was like, oh, like, holy hell. Like, I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really know that I could approach it from s- such a, a philosophical standpoint without it coming off as, a, you know, a fluff, you know? And it was, a, it was really important to me. So, big thanks, well, Chad Mackin. That's awesome. I mean, and that article, I get a lot of comments about that article, and it, it, it may, in fact, be the the, uh, the the most popular thing I've ever written. I won't say it's the best thing I've ever written, because there's actually points that I disagree with on it now. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, someone contacted me just yesterday, or the day before, within the past two days, and said, I'm working on a book about dogs right now, and I want to include that article. Do I have your permission? And I'm like, well, if you think it's, I mean, it's all over. It's, it's, it's essentially public domain at this point in time. It's all over the internet. Like it's, it's, it's that 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 ship has sailed. Like it's not, you know, it's there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. If I wanted to to, to protect it, there's no way I could. Yeah, right? too bad. So sad. Yeah, exactly. And I don't mind that, but the, the, you know, there's an issue. Like like my theory of drives has changed dramatically since then. Sure. Like there's a whole section there on drives, and I've, I have updated my theory on drives. It's still in keeping with the idea, mm-hmm. but but it's, it's I think my, my theory on drives is, is, is much more coherent and much more concrete and less nebulous than it was then. And so I told the guys, look, it needs. I think it needs some reworking if we're going to release it in you know you know 2016, 2017. It, it needs some reworking. It's no. It was good for when it was when it was written. It was it was. It, I won't say cutting edge, but it was. Knowledge has increased since then. You know what I mean, and, and, and my knowledge has increased since then. So while I still think it's a good article, and there's nothing that I go, that's terrible, rip it up. I go, that could be done better. So, but still, it is still the, the driving force behind everything I do is is that idea of relationship. That 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 is that is what builds. That's what our dogs are working for. But it's not so hidden anymore, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the cool part. Absolutely. As trainers talk about relationship, they talk about social rewards. Right? They talk about sure. about the social nature rewards. Michael Ellis talks about reward events, which I think, and I may be putting words in his mouth, but I think what he's talking about with that reward event is that socialization thing. Uh, Jay had the great analogy on our podcast was when he said, you know, look, uh, you have a choice. If we give, if you give me a choice between an empty room with my favorite pizza or a room with my favorite people and my favorite pizza, which one do you think I'm going to choose? Well, yeah, that's a no-brainer, right? Right, exactly. And, and so the idea, well, it seemed, it was new to me when I wrote the article. It was like that article that article just shot out of me in a period of like two hours. Like it was just nonstop, right? And the edits were hard. Like I really, really worked hard to edit it. But uh, that article just shot out of me because it was like this, it, it, what happened was a guy, a trainer in Canada named, Canada named Roger Hild had written an article. And I used some of the quote, same quotes he did. And I thought he was going somewhere. Like, I was reading what he was talking about. This is exactly what I was talking about, this exact phenomenon that I was talking about with the videos. I was reading. I thought he was going to go to one place, and he went to a different place. Yeah. And I went, no, 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 this other place is cool. We got to go there. And he never went there, so I had to go there. Well, <laughs> let me, uh, like, jump in real quick and just ask, is Roger Hill still training dogs? I think I think he just announced on Facebook last week that he was going to retire. Oh man! I think he just announced that he was going to retire, um, uh, but I won't swear to that. Uh, we we maintain a Facebook friendship, but no real contact beyond that. Like I I sometimes see sometimes his posts come across my news feed, and sometimes they, they um, obviously not everything he posts comes across. But I, I haven't you know direct messaged him, and I think the last time I had a conversation with him was 
probably six years ago, so I don't know for sure. Gotcha. Uh, you know, but uh, he inspired that article because I thought he was going to go somewhere and he didn't, so I had to go to that <laughs> to that place. So it was it was very much. I was very excited about it. it was It was earth shattering to me when I wrote it, um, and the, the the fact that it's not earth shattering anymore is I, I'm very happy about that. Absolutely, very, man. I would say I'd, I'd be more disappointed if. If all these all these years later you didn't uh, think like eh there's some stuff I'd change you know like right. uh, one of the things I've always been really stoked on uh, about the way you approach training is is you're a real seeker man you're always looking for that next thing you know what what can I improve what can I shape what can I hone as far as my skills are concerned to be more effective and and, and get to where I want to be and I think I've heard you use the analogy about. Um, Essentially, balance being not necessarily like a scale of what you're weighing, flour or whatever, but more so about balance being a point of which each time you get closer, it moves a little bit further away. <laughs> so, like as you're trying to reach for that that point of which you think this is what dog training is, you get there and then realize, well, I could still go a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's like anything, any complex skill. I think is that way. You know, uh, when you start learning a musical instrument, right? You know, the first thing is you gotta learn how to hold the thing, right? And you gotta learn how to manipulate the physical apparatus to make sound. And then you gotta learn where to manipulate to make the sound you want. And then you gotta learn how to make that sound quality better, right? And then you learn, uh, you learn patterns and you repeat those patterns ad nauseum until you can do them in your sleep. And only at that point in time do you get to really make music. Yeah. Right? Um, but then as you start on that, on that journey towards making music, everything gets, like, you're right, that bar constantly moves. You're like, oh, I want to be able to play like this. I want to be able to play this song. And then you can play that song and you go, that's cool. I like that song, but now I want to play this song. And as a writer, as if you're a creative musician and not, not a cover, you know, not just covering stuff, but you're writing, you start want to play in different styles and different modes. You know, uh, you want to explore different, uh, different genres or different uh, areas of tonality. You want to try different instruments. I don't know anybody who's an accomplished musician who only plays one instrument. Sure. Right. You always go, oh, I want to pick up that instrument too. And and, and, and so your your model of what when I was in high school, you know, my model of what a good bass player was, and what my model of a good bass player is now are two totally different things. And I got pretty far along that line. Like, I got pretty far along the line, but I also reached a point where I knew that to get to the next level, I would have to put in more time than was reasonable reasonable for me to do so, given where I was in life. Like, I sort of had to choose between dogs and music. And since dogs kept putting food on the table and music didn't, it was an easy, <laughs> it was an easy choice, right? But, yeah, I think it's true. What I think of a great – I, when I started training dogs, the guy who taught me to train dogs, my first mentor, uh, he used to say that the difference between a professional and an amateur job was speed and accuracy. How fast does the dog respond and how precise is the response? And so the first part of my career, I focused on that. I would, I would tell myself that dog's not fast enough, that dog's not fast enough, it's not precise enough, it needs more accuracy, it needs more accuracy. And I killed myself, killed myself trying to get that. And, you know, people who see me, hear me talk today about how 
unconcerned I am about precision would be amazed to see how detail-oriented I was back then. Like, every down had to be in that perfect sphinx position. Mm-hmm. Like they couldn't put their head down. Their head had to be up, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't cross their paws. They couldn't put a hip over. They had to be in that perfect sphinx position, their legs parallel. I was a, a taskmaster about that stuff. And and so it's, it's kind of humorous when people tell me now, oh, you just don't like the precision because you can't do it. Nonsense. <laughs> Nonsense. I did it so long that, that, that I, I had to argue with myself when I started to soften. But I'm a happier trainer now that I don't care about that stuff. I'm happier and I have happier clients. Really? <laughs> and so, but anyway, the point is, is my idea of what a great dog trainer is has changed. Because back then it was based on this objective external observation, right? It was based on results, but not results in the way that I think of results now. Like what, what, what I define as good results are different. Like I still am impressed by, like I, I was just bragging about Tekla. I still am impressed by precision. And the stuff Tekla does, I couldn't do that back then. I couldn't get those. Like when she starts spinning with that dog in a heel, have you seen her do that? She spins, oh, yeah. and that dog is like Ooh. just glued to her. It's beautiful. Oh my God, it's amazing, right? I couldn't have done that. I, I couldn't have done that with the skills I had before. But I could have a really sharp dog, and really precise and really functional, and something that, that any trainer today would go, that's, that's a well trained dog, right? Nobody sure. would go, that guy was lazy. Nobody, nobody would complain about the, the lack of consistency or the lack of prompt responses. I did all that. Mm-hmm. I did all that. But what I found was I was constantly battling with my clients to maintain it. They didn't want it. They didn't want that. They didn't. They didn't care. Getting a client to care about an automatic sit is the hardest thing I do. <laughs> right? And it's still that's still one that I keep. That's still one rule that I keep. The automatic sit at heel. That's a, that's an important one to me. That's not worth letting go of because there's a functional purpose for that. Sure. And and, and but it, it's hard because people. Well, as long as he stops when I stop, I don't care if he sits. And my answer to that is I don't either. But the sit means something. Yeah. The sit means something to the dog, and that's why it's important. So, is that Keeler bleeding into your life? No, 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 no. Okay, so here's my story with the automatic sit, and I don't think I've told this on my podcast. So you guys are going to get this. Oh, this beautiful! Fresh. Ooh, beautiful! Lovely. So this is this is this is this is. Uh, but uh, so when I was when I was you know uh, it, talking with Dick Russell every day, and, and we were sharing ideas, and he was mentoring me sometimes at his place in Baton Rouge, and sometimes you know through phone calls and the internet. Um, you know, he was the first guy to start to start making me question. The uh, the importance of precision, especially in regards to the AKC rules of obedience. He was the first guy to the first guy I respected to say, "I don't care if a dog lies down in a sit stay." And I argued with him for three weeks about that. <laughs> <laughs> and he finally convinced me. And I don't remember how. There wasn't this earth shattering moment when, oh, I get it. It wasn't like that. It was like. I knew I knew I was losing that argument from the first day, but I was stubborn and I wouldn't give up because I didn't want to admit I was wrong. Yeah, right. So I kept arguing and kept arguing, and finally I I had to go. You know what? You beat me on this a long time ago. I have just been arguing to argue. So, and I changed it, and I never looked back, and I don't regret it for an instant. No matter how many people tell me I'm a charlatan for believing that, <laughs> uh, I, I, I've never looked back. Um, 
but so then I started once that once that change was made, I started relooking looking at the importance of everything else. Right? And so the automatic sit came up because here's the thing, in my group classes, in my group classes, we start automatic sit the second week of training. We start we start putting the dog in a sit every time we stop at a heel. Week two, day one. And I have a nine week nine week class, so for six weeks they're practicing that thousands of stops if they're doing their homework every day. Thousands of stops where their dog sits. Thousands. Right? And at the end of that, at the end of that time, still the most commonly failed exercise was automatic sit. So I said, well, why are we, why are they failing? The only reason they're failing is they don't care. Because if they were working on it, all those stops, they wouldn't fail. They would, they would pass easily, right? Sure. And so I, I, I started thinking, well, maybe if nobody wants this, I don't need it. But I'm not an impulsive guy. I'm still very, I, I change very slowly. I'm very, I'm very, I enjoy change, but I'm, I, I, I try to never confuse or mistake change for progress. Right? Uh, so I had to make sure it was progress and not just change for the sake of changing. Uh, because it was certainly appealing to get rid of automatic sit because I don't have to fight with people about it anymore. Right? That would be appealing. But I didn't want to shortchange anybody. So I started contacting a lot of trainers. And what I found is that of all my trainers who taught group classes, all my trainer friends who taught group classes, about half of them taught automatic sit and about half of them did not. So that was not a lot of information until I started asking about the nature of the classes. It turned out that every single one of the ones who taught off-leash obedience in their group class required automatic sit. And none of the ones who didn't teach automatic sit taught off-leash obedience. Dick Russell, who taught basic obedience in one class, then advanced obedience in the next class, did not teach automatic sit until the advanced class. The advanced was the off-leash course. And so I began to wonder if there's a connection between having a good automatic sit and off-leash reliability. And as I set my mind to the puzzle, um, now Bill Keeler said that automatic sit is the only command the dog cues himself to obey, and therefore it's character. That's not entirely true, in my opinion. The dog is cueing himself to heal all the time. Mm-hmm. The whole process, like mm-hmm. it's still character. Like to me, that that, that argument sounded really nice, and but I, I never quite embraced that. I said, "There's not, that's not the whole picture." Like there's there's validity to it. I'm not saying it's totally false, but that's not the whole picture. There's more to that story than that, right? And sure. And, and so, to illustrate the importance of automatic sit, I asked my group class this question. I say, "Listen, if your dog is." 30 yards away, his face so deep in a rabbit hole that you can't see his head, right? And you say spot come, and spot knows what come means, and he doesn't come, has he been disobedient? And most times everybody but one or two people raises their hands. And uh, so I say, why do you think that? Well, you gave him a command and he didn't obey. And I said, is obedience and disobedience a choice? In other words, can you choose to obey a command you haven't heard? Can you choose to disobey a command you haven't heard? Well, no. So if he didn't hear the command, he's not a disobedient. Mm-hmm. The disobedience happened when he lost track of you. Sure. 
right? And the thing about automatic sit is be, uh, more so than any other command, it requires a dog to pay attention. If you can't get enough attention to have your dog notice that you've stopped at a heel and sit promptly, then you will never have enough attention to let that dog range 10, 15, 20 feet in front of you and still get them to come back. Yeah. So it's for the owners to learn to get their dog's attention and maintain it and to hold them accountable for that attention. And that's why it's important. That's why it matters. Because the, 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 the disobedience, the problem with off-leash control is not that your dog will not obey you at a distance. It's that your dog forgets about you when you get when he gets so far away from you. Well, that's kind of what I tell people is, you know, if your dog can't recognize that from two feet away you've stopped moving, the likelihood that they concern themselves with your activity 80 feet away is practically zero. Right. So I've, I've maintained that automatic sit for, and I, and I always will, unless somebody can present to me a good argument why it's not, it's, it's not that. And, you know, honestly, no one's ever tried, so maybe it's out there. But I tried. I have tried to disprove it. I, I, that's one of the things, too, I argue with myself all the time. I, I, I always try and disprove my own ideas. Uh, especially before I start spouting them to other people. All right. All right. Well, let's let's get into that then. All so, right. Let's do it. <laughs> can, do you want to expand a little bit, perhaps, on the concept or rather the idea of, of moving from pressure versus moving towards release? Okay. So yeah. This this. So my basic philosophy is that is that everything we do, and this is expansion of the pressure release model, but uh, uh, everything we do, every movement we take, every deliberate action we take, is an effort. It's either a toward or an away response. We're moving towards something or away from something, right? Sure. And and that's not necessarily based on proximity. So the example I use is you have two guys at the gym. They're both doing the exact same workout. They're both spending the exact same time. They're both they're both on the same diet plan. They're both as religious about their diet plan as the next. Like they have the same sorts of failures and the same sorts of sorts of strengths and weaknesses, all this stuff. Guy one is there because he wants to be healthy. Guy two is there because he doesn't want to be fat. Which of those guys do you think is going to succeed in the long run? Healthy guy. Healthy guy, yeah, because he's moving towards something. He has a goal. The other guy is just trying to avoid something. All right, so so when I start looking at a dog, I got a, a, a dog's response to training. I've got to try and figure out, am I working in the towards response or the away response? And that's important to me because I want the towards response. Towards response is more, is, is more sustainable. For the away response to be consistent, the, 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 the danger has to be persistent. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you go to work because you don't want to be poor, as soon as you win the lottery, what are you going to do? You're out the door. Yeah. Right. But if you're like like me and I presume you guys, if you go to work every day because you actually love what you do, winning the lottery is not going to change that. You're still going to do the same work. You might be, feel more free to turn down some, some clients that you don't want to work with. And you may you know, shorten your hours some and take more vacations, but you're still going to be working dogs. Sure. Right? Absolutely. Because that's a towards response, right? So I, I fundamentally need to find a towards response or I am not going to have sustainable uh, training. So when I look at the leash thing, for a long time I kind of thought I was moving away from pressure. I kind of thought they were moving away from pressure. But something that Tony Anchetta told me kept nagging on me. 
and he said this, and this is, you know, strictly straight, straight Keeler is that the, in the Keeler method of dog training, uh, Tony says uh, re- repeatedly, um, the slack leash is the dog's primary reinforcer. Now, obviously, from a you know, opera conditioning point of view, he's using primary primary reinforcer incorrectly, but we know what he means, right? Sure. Before you say good dog, before you give him a scratch in the head or even a treat if you're allowing to it, the pressure goes away. So the first signal that he has succeeded is the absence of pressure, mm-hmm. the slack, the presence of slack. So he frames that the slack leash is the dog's primary reinforcer. And I've always believed that. Like, I've always believed that. But it's still, I was thinking negative reinforcement. The pressure goes away. But here's the thing. The dog comes into you. Now, I know you guys generally, uh, Josh, uh, you guys generally start with the prong collar, right? Um, in, in a lot of cases, yeah. Prong collars, slip leads, martingales, that's usually the way it goes here. Okay, so let's let's just stick to the slip lead because that's my primary tool for this example. Uh and it would be harder. It would be harder for me to make this case with the prong collar, but not impossible. So I'm going to stick with the slip leaf for this example, because um, that's my primary tool. So when the dogs come in, oftentimes they're already on prong collars. People bring them in on prong collars, or they're on flat collars, or they're whatever. But they pull hard. They have been reinforced for pulling for years. Sometimes, like the gas pedal is pressure on the neck. That makes me go faster. Sure. Right. So they are. They there is no aversion to leash pressure in those dogs at all. None. They will lean into that leash all day long. Sometimes I have people come in and say they have to put the dog on a harness because they will literally pass out. They'll pull so hard on the leash, and then they'll wake up and pull again. So this pulling behavior has been systematically, inadvertently, but systematically reinforced by people who allow the dogs to keep moving forward on that pressure. Right. Yeah. So when we start working with the low levels of pressure that we try to use. In this conversational leash work paradigm, we're decreasing the amount of pressure the dog feels dramatically. Mm-hmm. Dramatically. Like, you know, within the end of the first session, you can usually be holding the leash and one finger. Right? Absolutely. Okay. So if the pressure is less than what the dog has been using, and what the dog is used to has never been a, has never been a punisher, has never been a diminisher, has not done a thing to diminish the behavior, but it has actually increased in intensity over the years, then it cannot be moving away from pressure because his nature is not to move away from pressure. His nature is to move into it. His habit is to move into it. What we're changing is the way he sees pressure. Pressure is now the brake instead of the gas pedal because his goal is to move forward. Sure. His goal is to, is to keep moving. And when we make that the brake and we make the slack the gas pedal, now the slack is reinforcing mm-hmm. because now he gets to move because now it is paired with the forward motion. So there is no way to argue that the, that the lightening of leash pressure is an aversive. There's absolutely no way to logically put that together that I've found. So we have to remove that as – now, the, 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 cessa, the cessation of forward motion is an aversive for sure. Sure. But – it's only aversive because he wants to move forward. Right? So he's moving towards something, not away from something. Yeah. He's trying to gain something. So ultimately, at the end of the day, you cannot, I don't believe you can say that the way that you, we do the leash, the conversational leash work, is about negative reinforcement. Not from the dog's perspective. I mean, if I had to draw it on the, on the, you know, on, on the quadrants, I'd have to put it there. 
because uh, you know the one of the one of the weaknesses of opera condition is it does not take into account the dog's goals at all. Sure. Right. Um, Just behavior. Exactly, and, and and you know, and of course, a, a strict operant conditioning uh, uh, acolyte would argue with me that well, we can't, we cannot know the dog's intent. Well, no, but we can make reasonable conclusions. Are there still acolytes in this day and age? No, it's that. But uh, but you know what I'm saying? It's it's like it it, it is. You can't. If you look at what the dog is used to doing, with the dog, the, the levels of pressure the dog walks through on a daily basis, right? if you look at that, and then you see the dog turning and yielding to pressure that's a tenth or even one one hundredth of that, happily, then you can't, you cannot draw the conclusion, in my opinion, that that's that that is a, it's in a way response. That's fair. I don't think it's. I don't think it's supportable. That's fair. <clears throat> well, I'm happy I got to uh, you know hear you expand upon that. It's a, uh, and I think you know there's going to be a lot of people that want to hear that. Well, good. I so. mean, it's it's, it's it, 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 you know I, I I Josh, I love what I do. I know. I love what I do, and I love it because of things like this. Because there's there's nothing that we know. George Cockrell has a wonderful line. It says, no one's ever interviewed a dog. Yeah. There are no experts on dog behavior. Except dogs. No doubt. That's a, just, Patrick Burns likes to say, <clears throat> the real dog experts have tails. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> so I don't claim to be an expert. I'm just a guy who's figured out some cool stuff. But what I do is, I, is because I don't believe experts exist, nobody's word is sacrosanct. Nobody's idea is untouchable. As much respect as I have for Tony Anchetta, I have publicly disagreed with him very vehemently. As much respect as I had for Dick Russell, as a matter of fact, we had, Dick Russell didn't, I didn't talk for a couple of years because I disagreed with him publicly. Sure. You know, and, and, and he was really upset by that, but you know, he was, in my opinion, he was wrong and he was being, he was, he was being condescending to somebody while being wrong, and that's the worst type of wrong. And, and uh, you know, hey, listen, I'm not bashing the guy. Dick Russell, I have everything I have. I wouldn't be sitting here on the, talking to you if it wasn't for Dick Russell. Mm-hmm. Right? Dick Russell is the, is the genesis of everything good in my life right now. Like, sure. That's the point where my life changes when I started working with him. So I'm not bashing him. I'm not bagging on him. I, I owe everything to him. But, sure. But that loyalty does not extend for anybody to me embracing an idea that is flawed out of respect, because that's disrespectful in my opinion. Hey, believe me, man, you don't have to explain to me. I saw you after that movie played. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we were there. Yeah. Yeah. You're choking me up now, actually. (laughs) Uh, But. Oh God! No, no, man. It's important to make sure that you you can have those types of discourses without it becoming something that's uh, again, you know, you're right, I'm wrong. That's I don't necessarily think that's that's really what 
dog training should or ever has been about, you know? No, no. Civil discourse is uh, okay. So you have there's there's a few disciplines that are that are connected with finding the truth, right? Uh, science is obviously the you know the big kahuna on that block, mm-hmm. right? Sure. But there's there's a lot of things that are not testable with science, at least not yet, such as the dog's intention. Yeah. Science can't reveal that. Like we don't have the technology to do that, and I don't know that we ever will. But I'm not gonna say we won't because hell, the things we can do today, I never thought we'd be able to do when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I used to say you would never be able to make a robot that could train a dog, and now you know, big leash is working on something very similar to that with leash pulling, and uh, it makes sense. Like their 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 model makes <clears> sense. <throat> like, oh, maybe you could. Maybe we will be out of business to the computers someday. But. So I'm not going to say it's not possible, but for those things that science can't give us an answer for, we have to use reason, mm-hmm. right? And so you got philosophy and logic as 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 disciplines to help discern truth, right? And both of those are based on vigorous discourse. Like philosophy doesn't exist without Socratic method. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and and logic is about like that's why they teach you logical fallacies in a logic course, so you can recognize when somebody's one of those cognitive errors that we all are prone to make comes up. And so, if we want to find the truth, or a closer version of the truth, I should say, because I don't know that I don't know that we'll ever know everything, and I and I don't believe that anything I know is inviolate. Like I will change my I will change my mind in a heartbeat if somebody gives me a good argument. That I can, you know, not in a heartbeat. I, I will, I will stew over it for, <laughs> for months, even. But, I, but, but actually, you know, here's the thing: like people think that I'm really stubborn, and I'm not. Like I'm stubborn about being right, and what I mean by that is not that I am stubborn at proving I'm right. I want to be right. I don't want to prove I'm right. I want to be right. I want to find out where I'm wrong, and fix it. Right. So, if you come to me with an argument I've not heard before. My first reaction might be go, no, you're wrong, but don't let that fool you. It's going to sit in my head and it's going to stew and I'm going to think about it. Yeah, weeks later, I'm stewing yeah. about that shit and it's, it's getting to me. Right, right. And then I start to change. And I start to test. Well, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. I want you to prove I, – I, the people who have proved me wrong are the people I valued the most. But the problem is, is that I have spent so many years in this game – Testing and retesting and retesting. Every day I think about what I do. Is this is and and and, and I and I study neuroscience. That's my big thing now is neuroscience, which I believe is the only true science of behavior. And what's really cool is that everything that I've been doing, and all of the theories that I've that, that I've developed over these years of of observation and testing and questioning and questioning. Now that I'm getting access to neuroscience, n- neurological studies and whatnot, I'm finding out that the stuff I've been arguing with people about is I'm I'm on the right side of those arguments. Nice. Like, like you know, I remember it wasn't five years ago that that if you said that dogs could feel love, that uh, a certain a certain subset of dog trainers would scoff at you and call you, you know, say you, you were anthropomorphizing and all they can do is simulate love behaviors because evolution has favored dogs that we thought loved them. And now, now we know that's not true. Now we absolutely know to a, as close to a medical certainty as you can get that they feel love. 
Sure. That's amazing. That's awesome. And they bond the same way we do with the oxytocin. The, me- the mechanism, the biological mechanisms are so similar. They are so closely in tune to us. And these are the things I'm talking about. These things that I have believed that I've argued and it's, you can't prove that. And they said, no, everybody believes that arguing from the bandwagon or irrelevant, irrelevant authority. Science has never, scientists, behaviorists never tested the theory that animals can't think. Skinner yeah. never tested that theory because he didn't have the apparatus. There was no way he could test that, that theory. Right. That's, that's so, so it's not his fault. It wasn't testable. But the problem is, is they made that a founding, a foundational principle of the discipline. Thought doesn't affect behavior. Therefore, we don't concern ourselves with thought. And, and, and everything, every place that, that strict behaviorism goes wrong, in my opinion, is, is at that point. That's the crossroads where everything starts to go south. That and this idea that learning is an event, not a process. Sure. That, that upsets me greatly, too. Um, but these are things that I've argued with. And again, neuroscience has come in, and in both cases, neuroscience says, no, no, ding, 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 this guy was right. You know, the guy with no formal training, the guy who didn't go to the college you went to, the guy who, he's the one that, that, that figured this out correctly. And that's not me being arrogant. I'm not going, look at me how smart I am. It's because I refuse to accept it just because everyone else said it was true. Mm-hmm. Because there's no such thing as sacred knowledge. The, the whole point of science is to constantly be evolving our knowledge. You can't evolve your knowledge if you don't admit that there's holes in the knowledge that you have. That's fair. I mean, I, I would have to wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, if you think you know everything, you're not really open to new information. Right. And so because I've been since – and this isn't just dogs. This is everything, dude. This is like I was reading – again, I, it sounds like such a, such a douchey brag to say, but when I was, <laughs> when I was in – I can remember getting made fun of in seventh grade for reading philosophy books in class. You sure it wasn't your mushroom haircut? <laughs> no, my kids, my, my, my friends would make fun of me for, for, for the books I read. Like, and when I would talk about things, you know, you're overcomplicating things. You, you think too deeply. You, you know, and, and this is who, it's part of my nature. It's not something, I, it's not anything worth bragging about. I just fundamentally am, am hyper-analytical. I can't let things, I, I used to get in trouble when I was a kid for taking my toys apart to see how they worked. Yeah, me too. So it's just who I am. So when I've been when I've been focusing for that many years on deliberately trying to remove the falsehoods from my thinking, you reach a point where it becomes very hard for someone to present to you a concept, an argument, an idea that you've not heard before and probably haven't held for a while. Right? So when somebody comes up to me, excuse me, when somebody comes up to me and says have you thought about this? And I go, well, yes, that's a good, that's a good thing. If it worked for this, this, and this, and they go, oh, well, I can explain that this way. Oh, but if that was true, then this would also be true, but that's clearly not true. So that doesn't answer the question anyway. And this goes on for a few exchanges. And then they finally say, well, you just have an answer for everything. Those are called like, haters. Like it's an insult. Yeah, for sure. Like what they mean to say is you've thought this through very thoroughly and I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> right. But see, they, what they what they're doing, though, is they're misdescribing my motive. They're thinking my motive is to prove I'm right. Sure. And it's not. My motive is to have a vigorous discourse. And yeah. if in the course of that vigorous discourse, you can prove me wrong, then I will thank you for it. That's but important, you, man. Huh? It's important. 
Yeah, but you're not going to prove me wrong using the first level of arguments or the second or third because I've probably been there. If I disagree with you, if I say out loud I think that's wrong, then you can pretty much bet that I've thought this through very thoroughly. Because I hate I hate to be made a fool of also. <laughs> so I couch my terms. I might say I'm not sure I agree with that or I'm still trying to figure out what I think about that or here are some problems I have with that. That's, that's me in transition. That's me trying to go, I don't know what I think about this, right? When I go, I'm pretty sure that's not true, then you can, you can, you can almost be guaranteed that I put a lot of time and energy into that question and have talked to a lot of people who are smarter than me about it. And As is your due diligence. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but what most people do, what's the normal human condition, is to say a thing is true or not true and then build the reasons around it. Right? The confirmation bias, it's, it's, it affects all of us if we allow it to. Interesting. That that's uh, it's good to hear someone else vocalize things that I tend to have trouble vocalizing with. You know, I, I tend to you describing yourself as a seventh grade student was the type of student I wished for. The one thing I, I really wish I instilled on a lot of students was just problem solving. Mm-hmm. I never I never really cared much. You know, sure, pass this test. Here's the answer. This is, you know, this is the question. Here's the answer. Mm-hmm. Remember it. But if you can solve a problem, well, damn, like you're on the right path. Yeah, our education system is not designed, in my opinion, to foster critical thinking. No, which is, um, is probably why my contract was not renewed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but I think that's a, again that's a function of the efficiency model, right? You have to you know the problem is is that we need objective standards in everything. Like like, like and this is the problem I'm facing, right? There's no objective standards, like and so you have the Keeler trainers and a lot of people saying, well, no, we have an objective standard. It's called the AKC novice routine. Right, right. But but that's not an objective standard for a sheepdog. Not at all. And there's no objective standard for pet dogs because my my problem with the AKC novice routine as the objective standard is just this. If I can ask anybody who's competed in the ring, have you ever seen a dog who can pass that, that, pass the novice routine who is still a pain in the ass outside of the ring? Yes. I see it. I see it regularly. Then your standard is flawed. It doesn't measure what you're trying to measure. 90% 90% are probably a pain in the ass outside of the ring. That may or may not be the case. I don't know what the percentage is, but if it's more than if it's if, if it's more than a statistical anomaly, then you have to accept that the standard doesn't measure what you're trying to sta- measure. Agreed. For sure. Right? So if the standard doesn't measure what you're trying to measure, why hold it up as as like the 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 argument seems to be some standard is better than no standard, but I my dad told me a long time ago, and my dad is the smartest person I've ever met in my life, and that's another blessing that I've had. Cause, cause he, <laughs> no, my he, dad is. Huh? My dad is. I've never met your dad, so it's okay. Yeah, but the, my the, dad is the smartest person I've ever met in my they life. They always tend to be right. No matter. Well, my dad has an ability to cut through the ch- cut to the chase and put something in perspective. So in this case, one of the things that he told me growing up was that I would, he said, I would rather have a gap than have something ineffective filling that gap. Because sooner or later, I'm going to count on the ineffective thing to support my weight and I'm going to fall through. But if there's a gap, I'm not even going to try it. 
And so I would rather have no standard than a standard that doesn't measure what it's supposed to measure. That's that's fair. So um, the what I actually looked at recently was the um, certification test that is on the IACP website. Have you had uh-huh. a chance to look at that yet? Um, not recently. Uh, I was involved in the drafting of some of the early, like the first CDT. Um, I was involved in the drafting of that. Uh, but that was a long time ago, and they've changed it quite a bit since then. But I've not looked at the most modern uh, iteration of it. Interesting. Um, but what I like about the IACP exams, even their most basic certification exam, is that it requires it requires you to have clients uh, say yes, what this guy did actually worked. Right. That there is there is like. It's, it's, but it's a subjective thing. The problem is it's not objective, it's subjective, which I don't have a problem with in terms of, of like, I think that's the only way you can do it, ultimately, uh, for a certification, because the body of knowledge of trainers is so vast and so varied, and, and the, the, the ideas of what a trained dog looks like. Like, for example, if you take the, uh, the this study that they, they keep pointing out to that uh, e-collars aren't, are no more effective than uh, positive reinforcement in teaching a recall. If you read the study, one of the things they say is a negative consequence of e-collar training is the dog spends less time engaged with the environment. Mm-hmm. Now, when I read that, I think, oh, he's focused on the handler. Isn't that the goal? Sure. Right? Well, to me it is, but to obviously opinion, the yeah. researchers who ran that study, that wasn't the goal. Right. Right, because they concluded that they, those dogs were no better trained than the others. In fact, they suggested that that might indicate the dog was not trained as well or was not happy. So we can't even agree on whether environmental engagement is a byproduct of a good training or not. So how can we come up with an objective standard that measures what good training looks like when something as simple as that? Right? So ultimately, because it's a commercial Listen, I think I'm going to piss some people off here, but I think go for our, it, please. I think we take ourselves way too damn seriously. <laughs> uh, like, Josh and I have this conversation daily. Like all this talk about certification that's going on. Like I get the only argument for certification is this: if if a bunch of hack trainers keep screwing up and it keeps making the news, sooner or later a government's going to come in and they're going to create a certification sure. that will be worse than what we can create. I agree with that argument, a hundred percent. I think we're a long way off from there. And the reason we're a long way off from there is the thing that we miss. Now, this statement's going to upset people. But understand, it's a generalization, not a, not an absolute. I'm excited for it. Okay. But generally speaking, people don't lose their lives when we screw up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, because people always say, well, you know, uh, chiropractors... Went and they certified that they, they regulate themselves. Well, yes, people get crippled if you do that wrong. Right? Sure. And they say plumbers. Yes, people die from bad plumbing. Hundreds of people died at the Chicago's World Fairs, but Chicago World Fair because uh, because the the plumbing line was siphoning the outgoing line back into the in- or, or the back into the incoming line so people were drinking sewage essentially from the water fountains bad plumbing kills people yeah they, you have to have a license to be a contractor yes because contractors you build a house wrong and it falls down you kill people if we screw up 
99% of the time, if we screw up our job, the worst thing that happens is somebody's stuck in management with their dog again. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes we got that badass dog who's going to kill a family member or maim a child if we screw up. Those do exist, and I'm not diminishing them. But that is a very small portion of what we see. A very small portion of what we see. And what the people who would push for regulation the most would say is those dogs should be put down anyway, which takes, again, takes it out of the, the takes us screwing it up out of the equation. We do not hold the lives in our hands that we imagine we do. That's not to diminish what we do, because what we do is very important. I wouldn't do it if I didn't believe that. But of all the times I've, I've screwed up a lot, I screw up every day. I make mistakes with every dog I train. Every session I make mistakes. You're probably the only one. I mean, yeah, maybe so. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, every time I look at a video of me training a dog, I go, "Oh, that was bad. I shouldn't have done that. That was off. That was wrong." Oh, look what that. Look how, look how, how, how did that not confuse the hell of the dog? Right? I do that to myself all the time. So with this high rate of mistakes that I make. And yet, I still seem to succeed more often than I fail, right? Uh, and I have never, no dog in, in 23 years of doing this, and I've had tough dogs. You know, I don't, I'm not one of these guys that brags about it and goes, oh, look at this, look at this biter I got, look at this biter I got. But my whole career, it's just recently that's easy to find a dog trainer who handles aggression. Back in the day when I was doing it, most trainers wouldn't touch it. So if you touched it, that's what you got because that's who came to you, right? Sure. The other trainers will refer that to you. So I have had my share of aggression cases. And that's another thing, too. I think the word aggression is thrown around too, too, too often because there's only a handful of truly dangerous dogs out there. Most of them are more, more bluff than anything else. Like they might put a hole in you, but they're not going to put you in the hospital. You know what I mean? But I've had my share of dogs who – were willing to and have hospitalized people before, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, none of them has ever, have ever, let me phrase that. I have recommended euthanasia for three of them. And only one of them, it was because I didn't think I could help the dog. The other two, it was because I didn't think I could help the owners. In other words, they were not going to follow the, the protocols necessary to get the dog to be in a safe place. Yeah. So it was not about the dog. It was about the, the dog's environment was not conducive to them succeeding. But this is a very small number. Mm-hmm. But so far, and by the way, none of those people took my advice. Not one of them. But to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever been hospitalized by a dog that I've trained once I've trained it. Despite all of that. And, and, and so we talk about this stuff. Like trainers get really, really... like. It, it, Everybody needs to have a mission. Everybody needs to believe that what they do is important. And and what we do is important, but not for that reason. What we do is complex because we want to be good at it. Like, anybody can crank on a dog and make him stop doing something that, that they don't want him to do. Right? That doesn't require a high level of skill. It doesn't have, require a high level of expertise. And and if you're looking for a fast solution, that's... that's I'm not going to say it's a good way to go because it's not how I want to work. But if you're looking for a fast solution, it's it's a good game to play. You know what I mean? It's a good it's a good way to go if you don't care about 
things like fairness to the dog and you know I don't want to get into too much issue there because I'm, I'm starting to head down a negative road but but what I'm saying is that, that that I made my living that way for many years someone brought me a biting dog I just made him more afraid of what I was going to do if he tried to bite than he was afraid of the, the he was afraid of the thing you know what I mean sure and, and it worked it, it worked beautifully like it, people loved me people loved me and and but I never thought it was amazing. I would have. I never bragged about it. I always felt kind of dirty, right? I went home. Went, oh, that wasn't good, you know. But I would tell myself, "But I saved this dog's life, and that's a good thing, and that is a good thing." I'm not diminishing that. But now I get to. I get. I get to save their lives, make them more stable, and not crank on them. And that's a lot better. That's a lot better. But the point is, is that, is that despite all of that, what we do. Like at the bottom end of the thing, at the bottom of the scale, what we what can be successful successful approach to dog training is not that tough. And I, I mean, it's really not. I started in this industry woefully unprepared for what I was going to do, and I managed to fake my way through it for many years before I got some real mentors who could really teach me. You know, and I was successful, and I was popular in my area, and I was I had secured, you know, vets or vet referrals from, you know, just about every vet in the area. Yeah. And I wasn't good. I was effective, but I wasn't good. And, well, and that's also like viewing through the lens of hindsight, right? I mean, well, yeah. I mean, but I think even then, I kind of knew that there had to be something more. Right? I, I think somewhere inside, I knew that I was taking a shortcut. I just didn't quite know how to. I did. You know what I'm saying? Like, sure. You know, but it worked. I suppressed behavior, and I was good at it. So, and I'm not trying to complain. You know, and I wasn't a hack. Don't get me wrong, but. You know, I'm a very different trainer now. I'll just leave it at that. My point is, is that, is that I don't think that the future of our industry, I don't think that the governments are going to jump involved, jump in and get involved until people start dying from bad dog training. I think that's a that's probably a perspective that hasn't really been explored um, voraciously. But I'm, I mean, I would have to kind of jump on board with it. I mean, there's not not really an incredible danger to humans uh, with a lot of our failures as dog trainers in most cases. I mean, there's obvious repercussions, but not like uh, somebody who builds a shitty bridge, right? Right, exactly. So. So, uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that it's, it's such a complex thing because the, the, the trainer wars are so vicious. Right, yeah. and maybe one of the pushes to regulate is that whoever gets to create the regulation creates the paradigm that every trainer has to use from that point forward. Um, and so there's there's an impetus there that if if we could get a, a, a sort of a, a training program that was based on a, a more balanced approach, then that would be codified into law, and that would give the balanced trainers a very strong position when when debating methods. But. But, you know, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think it's going to go that way, and it won't sustain. Because when I was a kid, corporal punishment was allowed in the schools. Me too. Right? And now it's not. Right? And so, and I'm not saying whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying it was bad. Huh? I'm saying it was bad. What, the corporal punishment or the not, or the... Oh, yeah, for sure. Um... I, I really don't have an opinion because I only have I only have the outcome of one set of circumstances to, to measure by. Um, I know that I wasn't terribly damaged. I got I got my share of licks in school, but I wasn't terribly damaged by them. Uh, but 
maybe I would have grown up better if they hadn't popped me. I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess, I, I I guess I it's it's just perspective, right? Because I think I'm I'm fairly rad, but uh, <laughs> yeah, part of that came from the nuns, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so anyway, my point is my point is is that is that. Uh, you know, the, the the general tendency of legislation right now is moving towards less accountability and more towards uh, a softer approach, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the value of punishment in all walks of life is being diminished daily, at least in, from a legal point of view. And, uh, you know... It's, so to me, it's a uh, you know you have situations now where somebody can break into your house and you shoot them and they can sue you for shooting them, right? Stand Even your ground, man. Huh? Stand your ground. Stand your ground. You know, it's 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 it, it, and again, you know, I know it's a complex issue, but the point is, is that somebody is actually committing a felony. Yeah. In your home, and they can sue you. For how you react to them committing a felony. Yep. Like, and the point is, is and whether you agree or disagree with that law, it illustrates the idea that we are moving further and further away from uh, suppressing negative behavior, and further and further into this, into the idea of, and this is a good idea in a lot of ways of understanding and trying to figure out why this person made this choice and I do believe that's a good idea I do believe that we should be looking into how to keep people from being criminals rather than how to punish them for being criminals I do believe that but the time to figure that out in my opinion is not when somebody's standing in my living room stealing my shit right exactly (laughs) that's not the time for that's not my job as as, as a victim of crime to to have that debate my crime my job is to protect my 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 things and my family and and to say you're not allowed in my house anymore you must leave or things are gonna get bad things are gonna get bad um but the point is is that is as a dog trainer i'm very much into into understanding the whys in the house again i go back to neuroscience I, i look at that a lot a lot of the stuff that i a lot of the things i do are based on strong scientific principles but not the ones that the positive trainers tell me are science based Right. I mean, uh, you know, you never hear you never hear those people talking about things like willpower depletion. You never hear them talk about glucose levels and how that affects behavior. You never hear them talk about uh, about uh, the force control as a resource. Say what? Impulse control as a resource. Yes, exactly. They, they don't talk about that. They don't talk about biological resources a dog has to make good choices. They don't talk about dogs making choices. They don't talk about the decision-making process. They don't talk about how uh, relationships are built. They don't talk about the oxytocin connection. They don't talk about what, what, what behaviors increase the oxytocin flow to increase relationship. They don't talk about that stuff. Like, their version of science is, 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 is uh, it's different from mine. It's a very different. It's a very different way of looking at it, but I, uh, the stuff I'm talking about is, is is a hard science. Like neuroscience is is measurable. Yeah. Measurable units. Perceivable. Is, huh? Perceivable. Yes, and so that is, is is that is very powerful, and I don't even know why. But anyway, so I understand. Like you can't just blame everything. Like there's a biological. Like, we talk about impulse control as a resource. There's a biological limit to how much impulse control you can muster. 
And when that limit is reached, you cannot make the right choice anymore. It's physiologically physiologically impossible, just like it's impossible to hang from a bridge by your fingertips forever. Sooner or later, those muscles will weaken. No matter how bad you want to hold on, you can't. And that's a biological limit because your brain is a physical organ that is ruled by the laws of physics and chemistry. That's not, that's not negotiable. We like to believe that we have this infinite supply of willpower. And if that dog had just tried a little harder, he could have made it. No, there is a point of willpower depletion where it stops working. It stops working, period. And then if you punish the dog for that, you're punishing them for the behavior they have no control over. That's your fault as a trainer. You got them into trouble. So I am not saying just punish the hell out of everything. I'm not saying that that, that uh, we should just run and, and suppress all these behaviors. I'm saying quite the opposite. But the option to punish deliberate disobedience where the dog has all the resources necessary to make the good choice, but it goes, nah, up yours, I'm going to do this instead. That's something that, that is being legislated away from parents from teachers and to a certain degree these days even law enforcement so that's fair so I don't see the government getting involved in training as something that's ever going to help balance trainers I don't disagree with you I I do have a question for you okay Um, and this is kind of like on a a bit of a closing note okay um other than a good trainer, what type of dog trainer would you like to be known as? Think on that for a second. Go ahead. Well, the good is the best one. I, you know, <laughs> I, 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 hate, I hate to label myself, but let, let me, if I can, if I can change the, the, the question a little bit, because I don't like labels. Yeah, no, 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 no. Listen, man, I want to know what you're striving for. I want to know what what you're seeking and I want to know what essentially you are trying to create as your own perception of of Chad Mackin. Okay, so I have a couple like like my, my primary goal every day when I get up is to be the best dog trainer I can be. Um, but I have a second mission and it's a mission that's very very dear to me and I have been working very hard to achieve this mission over for pretty much since I joined the IACP. And that is that I want to, well, let me phrase it, it's changed several times. So originally it was that I wanted to find more peace in the dog training world. In other words, I wanted to get good dialogue going along between the balanced and the positive-based trainers. I wanted to bridge that gap, so to speak. and now it's changed a little bit. Now my my goal is to, I want to get people to think about, seriously think about the ways in which they choose to use force and the ways in which they choose to use motivation as training modalities. I want people thinking about those things. I don't want people just doing the thing that their mentor taught them. I don't want people just like... I want people to think of the dogs as the, the magnificent, autonomous, complex beings they are. And there's a tendency in all aspects of this industry to simplify them, to break them down into archetypes and stereotypes and uh, 
you know, dime, dime store psychology, right? You know, uh, pop psychology. It's, it, it's, you know, everything's about dominance in one camp, and then another camp, everything's about, uh, you know, biological fulfillment, and then another camp, everything is about motivation and and uh, food drive, and or everything's about defense drive, or everything's about prey drive, or like, and and the, the the reality is is that all of these things come into play, and it's a complex dance. And if you focus on just one, you're going to miss out on a lot of other stuff. And so I want people to see dogs differently, trainers especially, and so then they can see, so the owners can see them differently. Uh, one of the things I tell everybody who comes in, almost everybody who comes in here for a meet and greet, is at some point in time they get a variation of this speech. You know, they'll, I'll let them tell me all about their dog and what their dog's doing and the reason they come into the dog trainer. And at some point in time, I will say, "Listen, it sounds like you're dealing with a lot," and I and I'm totally, I'm totally uh, ready to assist and help you make that go away. But I need you to understand something about myself before we go any further. You're coming to me because you have a problem with your dog. But I don't see that. What I see is I see the problems you have with your dog as a symptom of the problems your dog is having in his life. And my job is to help the dog solve his problem. And if I solve his problem, then I will by that process solve your problem. But if you just want me to solve your problem and don't want to invest in the dog, then I'm the wrong guy for you. There are plenty of trainers out there who can handle that job, and uh, they're not hard to find. I'm not going to give you their numbers, but they're not hard to find. (laughs) But if you want to continue with me, I need to get you to confirm with me right now that you are here to help your dog and not just solve your problem. Because I'm going to need your help if I'm going to solve his problem. Which is ultimately the same thing. Yes. Well, but see, you can solve the people's problem without helping the dog. Yeah, no, I mean. I know I did it for many years. Sure. Um, I, I just think from the perspective of which we tend to approach things, those things are are no longer separate, you know? Right. So, so the, to answer your question, to, to all that was a, was a, was my my circuitous thinking. To answer your question, <laughs> to answer your question, I want to influence everybody I come in contact with. Remind them if they're already doing it to keep doing it, and encourage them to do it if they're not already doing it. To think, to put the dog first, to do what's best for the dog. Not what's best, not what's most expedient, not what's easiest, not what's most convenient, but the thing that's best for the dog. No matter what that is, regardless of what your philosophy of dog training is, regardless of what your idea is, if the best thing is to grab that, that, that prong collar and give the dog one good sharp jerk and say, knock it off, you're being a dick, then that's the thing you should do. If the best thing to do is to put the dog away and come back from a different angle tomorrow, then that's the thing you should do. If the best thing is somewhere in between, then that's the thing you should do. Regardless of how you feel about it, regardless of what you think training should look like, you've got a dog in front of you that has a problem. Your job is to solve that problem, period. And if I can get the majority of dog trainers in the world, if I can help the majority of dog trainers in the world think that way, then we're going to raise the level, elevate the level of training and professionalism in the industry. If we can't, then then convenience will rule. The quick and easy fixes will continue to win, and folks like me and you and Tyler will become interesting footnotes in the history of dog training. That's a man. It's a. It's good to hear your perspective on that, and I think that's 
that's kind of honestly what I what I thought you were going to say, and um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm pretty happy that that you delivered for for my own my own personal satisfaction. But um, dude, it, it's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you. So, um, how can people get a hold of you? And I'd also like to, uh, to give you an opportunity to let people know of any opportunities you have coming up uh, for workshops, seminars, clinics, things like that. All right, so uh, I, I only have one more workshop this year, and that's uh, this coming weekend. I'm leaving in a couple of days to fight at Tucson. And I'm doing a workshop with Sarah Fulcher, uh, who is a positive-based trainer, So, and it's called Bridging the Gap. And the idea is just what we've been talking about, about sharing information across the sides of, of training and learning how to communicate, not just with other trainers, but in communication is always about bridging the gap, whether we're communicating with a dog, a client, or another trainer. So this is the theme, is, is creating lasting relationships with dogs, clients, and other and colleagues. Uh, so that's this coming weekend, and, and live streaming is available for that, so you may be able to, if people, I don't know when this is going to be released, but uh, if it's released in the next day or so, people can still... Uh, can still uh, sign up for live streaming for that, I think. Um, but if you want to get in touch with me to talk about getting a dog trained, uh, the number here uh, at the Paw Canine Campus in Geneva, Illinois, the greater Chicago area, 630-232-8663. Uh, you can find me on the web at packthebasics.net, or you can find me at Pack the Basics on Facebook. And if you run out of episodes of this awesome podcast, you might want to check out Dog Training Conversations, which is my home podca- podcast. And, uh, and something I listen to fairly regularly. So, um, you know, uh, much love, man. Keep at it. You guys are killing it. We, we love doing it. And, uh, and I'm so glad that you had me on, on this program. I'm going to have to go uh, search the archives. What is the title of this podcast? Philosophers and Madmen. Philosophers and Madmen. Interesting. Uh, that's cool. I like it. Hey, uh, you know, we want to hear from people that uh, we dig and things that we think about a lot and things that we're, we're kind of mad about. And dog training is obviously one of them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a, it's one of those things. Uh, you were a pretty obvious choice for me to, to have on here. You've, you're somebody who has influenced the way I train dogs in a very profound and uh, fundamental level. That's, that's, that's so, incredibly honoring for me to hear that because, you know, uh, you and Tyler are doing amazing stuff, you know. Um, and, and congratulations on the Learberg thing, by the way. That was, thank I was you. really happy to hear thank that, you. hear you were doing that. I think I mentioned at conference, but you did. Yeah. here's my chance to do it in public. But you guys are doing amazing stuff. And, and you know, I, I, look at, I look at you guys as, the, as the, 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 the front runners in the next generation. You know? Oh, man. Well, like, as I told you at conference, that's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of pressure, man. But uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, so me and Tyler have um, we've pu- we've put our lives into it, man. It's a, no, not at all. Unlike uh, yourself, you know, there's so many of us in this industry that this is what we live, this is what we breathe, this is what we get up and go to bed thinking about. And I, uh, you know, it's it's been an absolute honor getting to meet some of the people I've gotten to meet throughout the years, uh, through dog training yourself included. And, um, so thanks a lot for coming on our podcast. Um, it's, it's been rad for sure. So, uh, you guys enjoy the rest of your day and, uh, we're out from Josh Moran. I'm Dave Putman. Thank you, Chad. Again. Thanks for having me on guys. Anytime. Just let me know for sure. We'll have to do it again. Have a good evening. You too, Josh. Thank you. Bye, Dave. See you later, Chad.